the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There's never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up, Ben Dominich. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Welcome to Sideline Sanity. I am Michelle Tafoya, thrilled to be joined today by Ben Dominich, who has so much going on, I don't even know where to start. Um, the transom, should we start with that, your newsletter? Sure. Uh, uh, yes, I write, uh, I've written a newsletter now for uh, over a decade. I took it to Substack uh, last year uh, and uh, and have been very happy with it. Um, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of people get it every morning, and uh, and it's just kind of my way to try to chart what's going on in the world. Uh, and you know, so I'm I'm very pleased with the the reaction that we get for it. We have a book club. We have you know a nice little community there, and um, uh, I do that. I'm now the editor at large at the uh, at the Spectator, which is the uh, you know the oldest uh, magazine in the in the English language. In the UK, uh, they have an American edition uh, that uh, I is, is fairly young, and so I'm I'm kind of taking it over to to lead it as best I can. And then, obviously, I uh, am at Fox, where I'm a contributor, and uh, do uh, do a podcast there, the Ben Dominich podcast, that uh, uh, now goes out uh, twice a week, and. I show up on the shows and try to make sense of what's going on in this crazy world. And that's that's the thing. How do we make sense of it all? It's so difficult. I'm learning more and more every day that my idealistic approach to my own podcast is almost too idealistic, although I refuse to change my approach. But there there is just so much nonsense out there that when I open the paper, I look at the news or I start to absorb the world each day, and I'm wondering how you do this with your newsletter. How do you choose? Where do I start? Which thing do I want to talk about today and try to make sense of? How do you go through that process? You know, when I started uh, many years ago, uh, it was kind of a thing where I felt the freedom to, you know, weigh in on things regardless of whether they were the number one issue in the news or not. Nowadays, I feel like everything shifted to the point where you're almost expected to weigh in on, you know, the number one issue that people are talking about on Twitter or the like, regardless of if that's not one where you have a very strong opinion or one that's all that interesting. I'll give you an example of this. I probably have had the same attitude on uh, gun reform issues for as long as I can remember. You know, from my perspective, uh, the gun control approach is never one that's going to address 
the challenges that we see when it comes to uh, mentally disturbed people uh, gaining access at very young ages before they have a legal history or a mental health history that would prevent them from being able to get access uh, to these weapons. I think it's a very difficult scenario, but I also think you're not going to you know, do the Australia bit of melting down uh, all the guns in America, which is really what it would take, I think, in order to do this. And obviously the court has held consistently in favor of gun uh, rights on the part of the individual uh, you know, going back to the Heller decision and, and before that as well. And so when you're asked to weigh in on something like that, trying to have some perspective, you know, look at this from a historical lens is not something that really pleases a lot of people. They want you to be able to say, you can snap your fingers and make everything better. You have a solution that will immediately, you know, right every wrong, leave everyone satisfied. And I think that unfortunately, that's just not true about most problems that we face in America. It's not going to be true. And the longer that we pretend that it is true, the more dangerous it is, I think, for the country and for the kind of leadership class that we seem willing to tolerate in Washington, which is really completely divorced from most of the challenges that Americans face on a day-to-day basis. As we see every single day. And the knee-jerk response is that every issue in America requires some sort of federal response or, you know, mm-hmm. we can fix this problem. And and the fix is often worse than the problem itself, or the fix isn't really, or the problem isn't one that requires a federal fix. Uh, how do we, do you think, start to rein that in? Or, or is the toothpaste so so completely out of the tube that it almost feels like we're doomed with this political environment. Well, there, there are two things that I think I would point out are going on. One is a cultural thing that is not unique to the United States. Um, uh, Jorge Castaneda, who's an analyst of, of Mexican uh, politics and history, wrote a book many years ago called Manana Forever. And it was basically uh, a look back at the way that politics played out in response to disastrous incidents in Mexico. And basically what he found was that despite the fact that the government would fail the people, either through corruption or through inability to respond to their needs, the response over and over again was a mob essentially demanding that the government take more power, take more control of their lives. And as much as we talk about America becoming more like Europe, I actually think we're becoming a lot more like Mexico, at least in that sense, where the government fails us And our response is, well, the government needs to be able to be empowered to do more Uh, when, you know, it's it's the FDA that screwed up this baby formula issue. Do we really want to give more money and power to the FDA, you know, or is this something that we can solve in a different way? And then politically, there's another interesting thing going on, which I didn't really understand until I worked on Capitol Hill um, for uh, the senator from from Texas, uh, John Cornyn, for several years. Uh, He one of the things that I think we miss out is that. Uh, in, in terms of our civics understanding, is that it's in the interests of our representatives and senators to remove power from themselves. They actually are, are, they benefit from a scenario in which they take the power away from people who have to stand for election every two years or every six years, and they give it to faceless bureaucracies yeah. that are able to do whatever they want with that power. So the way that Obamacare played out was just this massive shift of power to Health and Human Services Department in order to do what they wanted with insurance in America and the like. And that's something that is actually to the benefit of those congressmen and senators, because then what they can say to you is when you have an issue, when you have a problem, they can say, well, I'm going to hold a committee hearing and yell at the people in charge and write them nasty letters 
and do oversight, quote unquote. But in reality, what they're doing is they're defending the, their position and their ability to keep their job because they get to basically say, hey, it's, don't blame me for this. You know, this is someone else's decision. And unfortunately, we've reached a point where the Congress and the Senate, by dint of this, has reduced its power to such a point where all they really can do is spend money and nominate judges and uh, and people to hold various positions. And that's really it. They don't really legislate anymore. And that's a real problem with the American system of government. It's a huge problem. And you're talking about agencies, I'm sure, also like the Environmental Protection Agency, others, these mm-hmm. these czars, they give these you know uh, responsibilities to. And then, OK, like you said, something's gone wrong. Let's hold a hearing. Um And speaking of hearings, you know, we're going to have this, you and I are recording this the day of uh, the primetime January 6th committee hearing. And so when people are actually listening to us, Ben, and watching this, it'll be after that. Are you planning to watch this? This seems like a made for television event, which factual, I mean, really all hearings are right. If they're televised, everyone's trying to use that for their advantage. But this one actually has a producer involved from ABC, a former Mm -hmm. ABC executive, what is going to be the value in watching this, do you think? Uh, first off, I don't think that uh, it's going to be all that worthwhile to watch it, in part because of the uh, the motivations that people have to basically make for online viral moments as opposed to achieve any real insight. I also think that we, frankly, know the bulk of everything that there is to know about January 6th at this point. I think it's been long past the point where there wasn't some new thing that was going to uh, drop. But I also think that it's very telling how much this is a made-for-TV thing, how much this is a media-led story, because it certainly isn't on the top list of priorities for the American people. You know, there's a portion of the Democratic coalition that cares a great deal about this, just from the lens of of saying we can use this as a sledgehammer against our political opponents. Um, But I think that the reality is that Americans are a lot more concerned about the state of the economy, about how much they're paying for gas, about, you know, shortages, about, you know, the the real sense, I think, of, of paranoia. I mean, I have a lot of people in my life who are not in any way, I would describe them as, as, as conservative. I would say that they're more like uh, centrist, you know, maybe culturally traditionalist types, you know, people who like football and uh, and who uh, and who like the country and like the American military, but aren't necessarily that uh, invested in day to day ideological politics. You know, they were turned off by a lot of things that happened in the last six years or so. There, that population of people is incredibly concerned in this moment. They're concerned that they feel like this is a White House that doesn't have a firm grip on the wheel. That this is a White House that is out of touch with what's going on in their lives. They're concerned about how they're going to, you know, buy pet food for their uh, pets right now. You know, I mean, it's, it's just things that they feel like are not familiar as an American problem. And for the Democrats on Capitol Hill to want to continue to wade into January 6th and uh, what I think was, you know, frankly, an embarrassing moment, yeah. but one that thankfully did not prove to be as damaging as it could have been in a lot of ways. Um, it's certainly nowhere near as damaging as the riots that took place during the the summer of love, uh, and that uh, and, and every incident related to that. Look, I I think that ultimately this is not going to achieve anything that they wanted to achieve in the same way that those repeated made for TV Mueller hearings and the like did not achieve what they wanted to achieve. 
Well, we'll see. The proof will be in the pudding, and uh, we'll we'll again revisit it later. But I I, I tend to agree with you. I think that this is probably not going to be worth the watch unless there's a little bit of you know. It's like the two sides; they get their popcorn out and they want to live tweet and say how the other side's wrong, and that's probably all that is going to come of this. More with Ben Dominic in just a second. We want to talk to him about the recent. Um, I guess we can call it an assassination attempt on uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the chief or the justice, the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. That coming up right after this. You know, since November of last year, the stock market has plummeted, but gold has been on the rise. Gas prices are ridiculously insane. The stock market is extremely volatile. Inflation is even worse than it was a year ago. And now we have this war with Russia and Ukraine that we can only hope doesn't spread to the rest of the world. It's no surprise the market's don't like instability. But the good news is you have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and protects against a weakening dollar. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company that I trust for investing in silver and gold. You need an investment that will protect your wealth and your retirement. So call Legacy Precious Metals today. Be proactive about this while there's still time. I mean, remember 2008? Those who invested in gold saw huge gains while others lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all your options for investing in gold and silver. You can speak to an IRA expert today at Legacy Precious Metals. Just call and ask your questions. I mean, it's as simple as that. 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. Or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Back with Ben Dominich of The Spectator and many, many other wonderful things. Uh, Ben, we just had a guy arrested for showing up very, very close. I don't know how many details we really have of just how close this was to happening, but to the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who, as we know, has a history of being treated horribly in Washington, D.C., And this guy had zip ties and a knife and weapons and apparently wanted to take out the judge, maybe his family, and then off himself. And yet the same day that he was arrested, that evening there were protests again in front of these judges' homes, which my understanding is illegal. How is this happening? Well, it's happening for a couple of reasons. Uh, You know, First off, I think that this is a truly embarrassing moment for this administration, for the White House, for Merrick Garland and the like, because they have been so slow on the uptake on preventing these protests, which are illegal. I mean, if you you look at the letter of the law, you are not allowed to go and do this kind of thing in front of these folks' houses. You can go in front of the Supreme Court if you like, you can, you know, but these are essentially active threats against families. And the, you know, the Commonwealth of Virginia and uh, and the state police in Maryland and others have been deployed outside of justices' homes. And look, death threats are are something that you're going to experience, and whether you're going to be a prominent politician uh, or you know someone who serves in the judiciary, that's not new. It's been around for a long time. What mm-hmm. is new is that thanks to the internet, you have the ability for random people to figure out where you live, where your kids go to school you know, to track your movements a lot, a lot more accurately than they used to. 
Um, and so it, it, it's a lot easier for someone who is crazy to come up with this idea and execute it very rapidly. Um, and I think that the fact that this ended up at being, you know, a, a minor story from the perspective of the New York Times or from the Washington Post to the degree that I, I still see people surprised learning about it in real time, you know, uh, online uh, because they hadn't heard about it. And that's because if you consume CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, if you consume them as your primary sources of news, you're not hearing about this, this, this thing that is definitively, you know, newsworthy and certainly should disturb us all. Unfortunately, I think that we're at a point where people are going to be increasingly targeted over free speech related concerns, even if uh, they are, whether they're in positions of power or not. And one of the reasons I say this is that a couple of years ago, the uh, Cato Institute, uh, Emily Eakins, who's the vice president there, uh, conducted a, a major survey, which found that half of strong liberals uh, in America and about a third of conservatives, strong conservatives in America, said that it was justifiable to fire someone from their job based on their political donations. Now, think about that for a second. That's not even taking a strong position. It's not saying something that's untoward. It's something that everyone who's a member of a, of a major party is likely to do, you know, in terms of giving $50 to somebody who they support. And yet people are now saying that's something that's fireable. So in other words, you don't even have to be famous. You don't even have to be in a position of power. You know, you can be a local authority or, or someone who just happens to have an opinion who people get irritated at, and they have the ability now to target you in a way that they didn't used to. And I think that's an enormous concern for the health of our, uh, of our government and our ability to come out at the end of an election and respect the people on the other side. Think about it this way, Michelle. In 2020 and in 2016, you've had back-to-back -back elections where the losing side basically said they didn't lose, where <laughs> Hillary Clinton said that you know the Russians stole the election or where Donald Trump said that there was enough election fraud that, that he would have won. And the problem is there are a lot of people, I think, who agreed with them on both counts. Obviously, the, the Hillary stuff had the power of the major media force behind it. Um, and I think a lot of people are distrustful of our election uh, circumstances in part because of, of justifiable incidences of fraud that they find, though I think that those fraud discoveries uh, don't measure up to the level where they would have made a difference. That's This is still a thing where I think if we can't reach a point where when you lose an election, you lick your wounds and you say, we'll, we'll come back and fight another day, that's going to be something that is very bad for the way that our uh, that our republic works. And get used to it because if Stacey Abrams loses this fall, and I expect that she will, she's going to do the same thing that she did last time around and say that to, that she actually won and say that things were biased against her. And the left will hold her up and put her on a pedestal just like they did last time around uh, and treat everything that she says as if it's the truth. It's amazing to me and that so many people buy into it. And, you know, I, I. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. 
Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. We all have a responsibility to do our own homework and reach our own conclusions. And I guess that's I'm laughing at myself because that's just not going to happen. You were talking about freedom of speech, and I know that you made a joke on if, with some friends about, you know, going to the salt mines. If anyone in my employee does this, they're going to the salt mines. And it, it wound up in court, Ben. I, I'd love to hear your take on this because I know this was just recently resolved. But this sure. to me is like, I mean, that you had to deal with a, a court case here surrounding this is mind boggling to me. What happened from from your point of view? So, so what happened was, uh, this is several years ago, uh, the, the folks over at Vox Media, you know, a left of center publication, were uh, going through a fight over unionization, and they had a walkout. And frankly, I thought it looked kind of silly, because it's a lot of young, privileged white liberals basically LARPing as if they're, you know, hard hat wearing, you know, union types. And I just made a joke about it saying, you know, the first person who tries to do this at, uh, at the Federalist that I, where I was uh, both co-founder and publisher at the time, um, uh, what, you know, I'll send you back to the salt mine. <laughs> now this was a joke. It was an obvious joke among my, my friends and colleagues that they were jokes about, uh, salt shakers and, you know, who would lead an, an uprising from the salt mine and that kind of thing. And, uh, it was all, you know, a good laugh, but, uh, though I would only grade my joke as like a B minus, it's not a very good joke. Um, but but the the upshot of this is uh, a couple of folks who are left of center, um, uh, strongly pro union folks uh, used this to do something that I didn't know that they could do at the time, which was report me to the National Labor Relations Board, which is one of these big faceless bureaucrat- bureaucratic entities. Um, that and use that reporting to say I was engaging in illegal anti-union activity um, by expressing this joke. And the board came to me and basically said that they were going to prosecute this, that they were going to invade um, our, and that if I didn't apologize, delete the tweet and post some things uh, that they approved that I would be, uh, they would subpoena all of my email records going back years within all of our different employees that they would that they would haul them all in front of uh, you know courts to be uh, deposed and that kind of thing, basically threatening me with all of these negative consequences if I didn't if I decided to fight them. And I decided to fight them uh, thanks to the uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is a small group of nonprofit attorneys that stands up against um, uh, bureaucrats in a lot of these cases. And one of the reasons I did was they came to me with an argument that basically said, look, we think you have freedom of speech within this area. We also think that it's completely crazy that someone who's never worked with you, never met you, never had any business relationship with you, a stranger, can just see a tweet that you've made online go and report you uh, and engage in this kind of trollish activity. 
we had to go through the whole bureaucratic court system, which is where one bureaucrat sort of puts on the judge hat and rules on the bureaucrat who works next door to them, uh, you know, on their case and that kind of thing. So it's all a sham, very Kafkaesque. Uh, but eventually, after more than two years, we got in front of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Pennsylvania, where a three-judge panel finally heard it, and they ruled unanimously in my favor. Um, they found basically both that the NLRB had never proven that this was in any way a threat, that it was obviously a joke, that any reasonable person would think it was a joke, and that I was justified under my free speech rights to say it. But in addition to that, and this is the part that I think is going to be is going to be interesting just in terms of how cases like this play out in the future, because this has been an issue for Ben Shapiro. This was an issue for Dave Portnoy at, at Barstool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, into the Shapiro case, I think they retracted it. And in, in, uh, in the uh, Portnoy case, though, he had to settle. Um, and part of the, the decision that they put out there basically said, we think this is something that either Congress or the Supreme Court needs to take a look at because we now live in this new era of social media where someone can reach out and target you regardless of whether they know you or not. And they have a line in there about how this is a system that seems designed not to reward civic minded people, you know, reporting true violations, but in in fact is going to reward trolls. I think that's a hundred percent true. And it's consistent with what I was saying earlier about targeting donors, you know, targeting people just for random things that they say, you know, the local business owner who, you know, makes a comment or has a bumper sticker or, you know, puts a sign in their window where they're deemed to be unpopular by the local community, they could be subject to this as well. And I think that that's something that is is really scary because it, people don't understand that our, our free speech rights are not quite as solid as we would like them to be. We would, we would like them to be a lot stronger, particularly when it comes to this kind of bureaucratic pressure where, where they're basically saying, we don't even have to take you to court in order to make your life hell for the next several years. It's amazing. We can't let the trolls win. We cannot let the trolls win, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Ben Dominich, I'm so glad that you didn't apologize for saying back to the salt mines. And I'm so grateful for people like Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais and trying to get laughter back into our lives and, and that joking is not a threat. I, I, I'm in a place right now, Ben, where I'm so concerned that we're so far gone. But then again, Matthew McConaughey goes into the White House the other day, makes a speech where he says the vast majority of us live in the middle. I hope that's true, but I think that some people think they live in the middle and they really are off on the fringe. I think I live in the middle and some people think I'm off on the other fringe. Is there a vast middle or are we headed for some sort of civil war here? So first off, I don't think we're headed for a civil war, no, but I do think that we are in a cultural civil war and have been for a long time, in part because you may end up in the middle in so many different ways, but the extremes are the ones who have the loudest voice. And just because you're in the middle on most things doesn't mean that you're in the middle on everything. You know, there's lots of people who I think of as being politically very much in the middle who are Catholic, for instance, 
who are very strongly uh, pro-life, mm-hmm. um, you know, have a real problem with the re- the abortion regime that we've had in America for a long time. They would be depicted as extremists on that issue, despite the fact that, you know, they also are fine with government spending when it comes to health care. They're, you know, in favor of, of social support for widows and orphans and the sick and infirm. You know, they have... Uh, you know, essentially a a position on economic policy that would be very out of step with, you know, the typical fiscal conservative, you know, harsher kind of approach to things. Uh, And yet they would be depicted as extreme because of their position on a single issue. I think that that's something that we have a lot of in America. And I actually think that's a good thing. One of the things that is always funny to me is to see, you know, Joe Rogan referred to as this, you know, extreme conservative when in reality, from my perspective, he and Bill Maher and a lot of these guys basically are ACLU liberals from the late 1990s who never really changed. Right. They have the same position on this stuff that they had back in 1998 when, you know, it was it was Tipper Gore who was angry about rap lyrics and things like that. Yeah. And so I think that one of the things, you know, we we have to keep in mind is you can be called extreme these days for just wanting to go back to the way things worked in 2010 or 2012. You know, it's not ancient history. You're not trying to take us back to 1920. Much as I would like our government to be the size that it was in 1920, yeah, I don't no think kidding. that that's a very realistic thing. Um, I, I do like that Calvin Coolidge uh, energy. But, but I do think that one of the things that we should keep in mind about this is we need to find more and more spaces where the vast majority of people who don't hate everyone that disagrees with them. That majority, which I do believe exists, uh, has more and more places where it can find uh, an ability to have a conversation. Because it's the extremes, I think, who want to rein in the public square to look exactly like they want it to look. Right. To bar people from entry, to bar them from saying their opinion, uh, to shut them down or yell them down, shout them down. And prevent them from saying things because they know deep down that those things are more accurate or or more supported by most Americans. So that to me is the really important part of this, the cultural space, creating those cultural spaces where we can say, you know, um, uh, these are things that we have in common. It's one of the reasons why I've always been opposed to this conservative idea that we should go away from sports or go away from, you know, stop watching sports. These, these people don't support you or they don't agree with you or that kind of thing. I I view it the other way around. I want sports to be a place where Americans come together, um, where they can, uh, you know, have uh, a, a common feeling about things and where they can, you know, regardless of whether, uh, what color their, their political opinions are, uh, that we can root against each other uh, and argue about things and win and lose along with our teams uh, and be friendly afterwards. Um, maybe not immediately afterwards, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that, that Celtics uh, warrior series is interesting, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but still be, still be friendly at the end of the day. Well, that that's something that I went through professionally. I was covering the NFL when the kneeling began and I didn't agree with the NFL's response to it. I thought that they shouldn't have gotten in the way. They should have let everyone do what they wanted to do. I understood where they knew that fans were reacting in a negative way and they were losing some ratings and people didn't want sports to be that place 
where the division crept in because it is an escape. It is a place where you can go and sit with your fellow fans at a bar and just cheer your brains out for or against another team. And it's fun and it's harmless at the end of the day because it's a win or a loss. It's not life and death. And so when this began and this these kind of really bitter messages toward the police uh, began coming out of this, it really turned a number of Americans off, some of whom I knew personally that just, I'm done, I'm not watching anymore. I think that organically it would have taken its course. It would have Mm. figured itself out with the players, with their coaches, with their owners. The NFL did not have to impose rules about this. And I felt that the rules that they imposed were a little knee-jerk and a little too... um, you've got to do it our way or the highway kind of thing. And it just fed into the whole, you know, oppressed oppressor kind of narrative. And I, and I, and so I disagreed with that. I think that it just, if we just let everyone do what they wanted to do, we didn't have to cover it every single game and just let it be that it would have found, it would have worked its way through the players and the fans organically. That's my own personal opinion. So, but people, so that is, that is a place where people want to say, look, Colin Kaepernick or whoever you are, I respect your beliefs. I respect your opinions, but I don't want to be lectured about it in some symbolic way as I'm just trying to sit down and watch a game. So that's kind of where the rub was, don't you think? Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you said there is really important, which is trusting the people, trusting the people to work things out for themselves um, to have these arguments and to figure them out without those types of restrictions, I think is really important. And I think that when you start going down this this path toward, you know, an, an inability to have these types of discussions in different you know ways across uh, American uh, life experiences, uh, then it's playing a dangerous game uh, because a lot a lot of it has to do with randomness and uh, and you know what's okay, what's not okay you know, involving a bunch of different opinions and corporate sponsors and things like that. You know, the thing that I feel like is, is unfortunate about this is we do want to be able to have these conversations take place in ways um, that allow people to work through them and not have other things creep in that prevent those conversations from happening. I'll give you just one example of this, which is just that, you know, when, I think that one of the things you saw politically when Donald Trump came on the scene in 2015 was that because of his willingness to touch a lot of third rails of politics, uh, he broke open a lot of debates that had been artificially closed for a long time, whether that was within the foreign policy space or within a lot of other you know areas that people were uncomfortable with. I think he took advantage of that in part uh, in order to advance his arguments, and, and it played obviously to his great benefit. When we artificially constrict the way that these debates happen, we don't get accurate reflections of what's going on in the world and what's important to people. The fact that there is no prominent female pro-gun, pro-life voice in any of the non-Fox, you know, sort of non-podcast media right now is a problem. Because if you don't even know that those people exist, if there's no avatar for them that's out there, uh, then it gives you an inaccurate reflection of what's going on in the world. You can come to the conclusion that you know every woman in America is is uh, you know in favor of of unrestricted abortion, or that every woman in America is you know holds certain positions on guns that are just inaccurate. Uh, you know, 
it was a real shock to a lot of people that as many Hispanic voters voted the way that they did in this last election, and that as many Hispanic and Asian voters voted as they did in this uh, Virginia election this past year. Uh, but if you were in those communities and talking to the people who make up the, those communities, you were far less surprised. Yeah, uh, it's it's not it's not as much of a surprise. I mean, uh, this San Francisco situation where they just had this recall of this radical uh, Soros-backed prosecutor who, um, who's uh, parentage was all, you know, weather underground folks, um, you know, and who worked for Hugo Chavez. It was, it it was something that was mostly driven, not by the white liberals who command the heights of power in a lot of ways in in San Francisco, but by the Asian voters in that, in that area who are fed up with the way that uh, things have been playing out with crime. Um, And, you know, he blamed uh, right-wing billionaires and things yeah. like that. Yeah. But but the truth is the truth is that's just not accurate. And if we had better reporting, if we had a better understanding of the communities that are around us and uh, and are our neighbors and our friends, then I think we would be less surprised when we find out that their opinions are a lot more heterodox than uh, than the American media likes to pretend. Yeah, it, that, that's. Uh, I was just asked about that recently. How much is the media to blame for this great divide in America? And I, and I think there is blame to go around. Uh, it's social media. It's the various networks and their their agendas, if you will, or their points of view. And it's, it's hard for me to search online uh, for any news story. And I look at, okay, what's the source? What's the source? What's the source? Which one of these sources do I really trust? Because each one of them comes with some sort of agenda. So I try to read mm-hmm. a bunch of them, but then I'm just left thinking, I, I I really don't know what the facts are here because they're being presented in such a way that favors either one side or the other. How do you, how do you parse through that stuff, Ben? How do you, how do you try to find the essence of these issues? I, you know, I do my best to try to find just a really wide range of ideological sources for the material that I consume. I listen to a lot of podcasts that are not, you know, uh, in fact, I think I don't at this point, you know, I, I don't think I listen to, you know, anyone who really is is right of center other than the the, the fifth column guys consistently. Um, and even they are, are pretty heterodox. But the, the point being, I try to listen to people who I don't necessarily agree with. Right. Um, in order to in order to get uh, their perspective. But one one thing I'll tell you is that it's a lot harder to do that um, as someone on the left than it is for someone on the right. I um was speaking at the uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival a couple of years ago, and I pointed out that in the previous month on uh, on Netflix, they had had multiple storylines that were all in favor of uh, or supportive of uh, abortion on demand, and that I said, you know, these were things that I just watched naturally because I consume a lot of you know pop culture and things like that. If you wanted to have the alternate view on those points. You'd have to seek it out. Yeah. And that's because the heights of power in media and Hollywood are really held by people who, regardless of their opinions on, on economic issues or on, uh, you know, guns or violence, uh, which they obviously use to, to a massive, massive effect in yeah. terms of, of um, what they produce. Uh, they are, uh, you know, avowedly socially leftist when it comes to these culture issues. And, because of that, you just end up without seeing those stories. And so from my perspective, yes, a big part of this is media. 
But the way to combat that is to make sure that you personally, you have these choices in front of you. You can go and consume the substacks and the podcasts and the, and the articles from people who you don't necessarily agree with. You just have to choose to do that. And in whatever you do, don't become one of those people who cancels their New York Times subscription every time Ralph Stouthit writes something that you don't like. Because <laughs> that is the that is the opposite of what you ought to do in that situation. What if, should you do? Did, Just read it and weep? What should you do? You, you, should, you should read it and write a, uh, and, and write a dear sir letter in response. <laughs> um, that's what you should do. Oh my goodness. I, it's, it's also difficult for me when I want to listen to the other side of any particular issue and it's it's presented in a way that is not fact based it's mm-hmm. it's pure emotion it's anger it's feelings and and i want to say and and many times citing erroneous facts to prove their points and i listen to it and i i'm frustrated because yeah. i i can't answer them and i know they're saying things that aren't necessarily factual to prove their point of view and it, yeah. so then I'm I'm left even more frustrated. So while I really want to engage with the other side, and I did earlier today, which I mentioned to you, and it was quite painful because they had already made up their minds about me and everything I was. They thought I stood for, and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. So it it's it's I'm finding it difficult to have this discourse mm-hmm. with with people who disagree with me on a topic. It's very, it's very difficult. Um, and, and I agree. And I think that the number of places that allow this type of thing to happen are decreasing dramatically in terms of any kind of debate, uh, allowing any kind of, of, uh, healthy disagreement. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, I've participated in, uh, in the past, uh, these, uh, intelligence squared debates, uh, that where they have two people on each side of an issue, and you argue through things and there are different questions put to you. And then at the end of the day, the audience votes, basically one, uh, they vote ahead of it and they vote after it. And it's the level of percentage that changes that indicates kind of the quote unquote winner. Right. But it's a healthy experience, uh, you know, regardless of, of the way things come out. Um, and uh, it's easy for me to say that because I've won all of mine. <laughs> but, but, but but one of the things that the one of the things we'll see if I feel differently after I lose eventually. But, <laughs> but the point is that I think having more places for debate, more places where we go back and forth on this stuff in the interim between our presidential election years and the like, is really important because if we're at this position where, you know, we only had. Uh, you know, we even had one of the debates canceled this past time. We didn't have a single debate that talked about foreign policy, which is kind of a big deal. Um, and so I think that one of the things that we really need is to encourage more and more of that, because if you have those debates in a field or in a context um, in which they aren't just people screaming at each other, yeah. uh, whether on the radio or uh, on uh, or in the streets, then I think that that can actually lead us to a better point. And it doesn't leave people feeling like the only time that they can confront a politician or an official uh, is when they see them out at dinner with their family, yeah. um, which is just a horrible you know, thing uh, to happen, but is also something that's very just unhealthy for the way that we ought to work as a society. All right. We talked a little bit earlier about Brett Kavanaugh, the, the Supreme Court justice, and this 
looming decision this that we're waiting for. And some people say, just give it to us quickly so we can rip this Band-Aid off about Roe v. Wade and whether or not that's going to be overturned. If, as we expect, it is to be overturned, I think we can also expect a reaction that, as you call it, is unhealthy. Do you think that the Justice Department is going to protect these judges in an appropriate fashion? I think they're going to have to. I think that this uh, latest threat is going to uh, is going to hopefully lead to some changes. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, you know people are asking, you know, why haven't they released the decision? You know, today. Um, one thing to keep in mind about that is, you know, many of these justices still have school age children, and they have children who are in school, and uh, they don't want to have to pull them out and uh, and leave. Uh, in order to protect them from the consequences of, of a decision that they would have coming down. The court has also been very resistant to being pressured from the outside to release things on a schedule other than the one that they determine. Ultimately, I do think the decision will probably be pretty close to what we had leaked. Um, I do think that that investigation needs to be concluded as soon as possible. Of so the leak you're get- talking about? Like, yes, of the league. And you think that investigation is legitimately happening and it's just so quiet we don't know about it? I, I do believe it in part because it's something that goes directly to the kind of things that Chief Justice Roberts is concerned about. Um, he, you know, regardless of any ideological disagreements that I have with him or anybody else has with him, he does care about this kind of thing. It's a real break, not just in the protocol, but in the trust level of the court. Um, and I think that we, you know, hopefully we'll see Uh, some real answers there. We deserve real answers there. This can't be something that just uh, slips away. And there should be real consequences for the person or people involved. Um, But I do think that once that comes down, there is going to be a backlash. I do think that backlash might be more muted than people expect, only because I think the amount, the way the leak played out, the amount of time that's gone on since then, I think people have gotten a little bit more aware of the fact that even if this decision happens, it doesn't get rid of, you know, policies in California and New York and the like. And this is going to be an issue that plays out in fights across the state level, um, which has always been, you know, the, the argument that, you know, was short circuited by Roe. Um, look, I, I'm very interested in what comes next because I think my hope is that it actually works as a reminder to people that we can govern ourselves and that we have the ability to make these determinations in, in places outside of, you know, just the, the stroke of a pen in Washington, DC, um, that we can decide these things closer to ourselves and that we have the ability to do so. And that's my hope that, uh, is the response across the country to the, to any reaction to this verdict. I tend to agree with that. I, I, and, and it's my hope as well. And, and I, I have been a little bit surprised that the reaction to the leak, which we initially saw was kind of a, you know, a little mini explosion, even a little smaller than I anticipated, but has become a little less and, and, you know, has just muted a little bit over time. And so we expect this now we're braced for, I, I I hope we can all respond in a way that is respectful of everyone, especially kids of justices. My God, the fact Mm -hmm. that they have to worry about their kids being in school or yanking them out is is a sad state of affairs. Ben, it's it's so great to talk to you, and I really hope we can do it again because we really just scratched the surface of uh, things I'd love to dig in with you about. And uh, I, I subscribed to your newsletter. I think everybody should. You can find it on Substack, The Transom, 
and the spectator and everywhere else that you, your voice can be heard. I appreciate you so much, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Thanks for watching. So with the economy the way that it is, which is not great, makes you think about what is smart investing these days. I was given a gift of gold by my mom. My husband and I were gifted some gold for a wedding anniversary and we're really grateful. And I am really grateful to Charles Thorngren, who grow, who joins us now from Legacy Precious Metals, a sponsor of Sideline Sanity. Charles, we appreciate you so much. You know, we're hearing more and more about how inflation ain't transitory after all, and it may be here a while. And, you know, food shelves are getting, the lines are longer. It This is really, it's not the America I grew up in, and it's, it's worrying a lot of people. So if, if someone's thinking about investing... What do you tell them? You, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Investing nowadays, uh, we, we want to go back to kind of the basics, really, where diversification has always been key. And, and we hear it. We've been told it ad nauseum, you know, diversify, diversify. And then everyone puts all their money in the stock market and wonders <laughs> why when there's a pullback, they're in trouble. Diversity means asset class diversity as well. You know, some real estate, um, some precious metals. These are the things that gives your portfolio the legs to stand through all the storms that will happen financially. And, and we know that they happen. They happen continuously and they recur. So that's what diversity is truly meant to do. And that's why people used to talk about diversity. So when people see the value of the dollar declining or they see inflation, um, how do you get the average person like me to understand that gold can still be appreciating or that gold can protect right. against that stuff. How, how does that make sense for people? You know, the, the easiest way to look at it is if you look at gold, right? Gold is the anti-dollar investment. As a dollar gets weaker, gold gets stronger. And we know that because it takes more dollars to buy that gold, just like cars cost more now, right? Um, Anytime you have inflation, the item that you're buying costs more. The difference with gold is that it doesn't devalue. It's considered a alternative currency. Basically, when you say that I don't have complete faith that this financial system is not built on a house of cards, or I don't have complete faith in, in what the current Fed is doing to fight inflation, this is where gold comes in. And this is where we see people increase their amount of gold because a diversified portfolio should have some gold regardless. We need to remember that the United States Fed says 2 to 3% inflation is ideal. So that means for the average saver, if your retirement account's invested and it's based in dollars, that you're going to lose 60% of your purchasing power to inflation by the time you're ready to retire. And that's under the best of terms. And now we can talk about the, oh, it's transitory. Oh, no, maybe I was wrong. Um, maybe we need to do half basis points every month for the rest of the year and then see where it's at next year. These are scary things that mm -hmm. the experts are trying to tell us that maybe we didn't have it right. And this is why people have gold and this is why it offers that protection. It's interesting. Uh, I, you know, I think people think, well, if I'm investing in gold, do I actually possess the gold in, you know, I have it in a safe? Do I have, how do you get gold? How do you keep gold? 
Right. And, and physical gold. I mean, this is what we do. So yes, if you're buying it outside of an IRA, we can deliver it right to your home and you can put it in your own safe. You can put it in your safety deposit box. If you don't feel comfortable with that, we do offer storage for our clients as well. Okay. So there's lots of options. Uh, in the IRA, it's stored for you, just like your IRA account. You don't have access to those stocks. So if you were to take funds from your IRA, you could make that investment and you'd have the retirement account invested in the precious metals as well. And it would be handled just like every other IRA account. That's really interesting. And, and now I'm going to ask you a tough one, and I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm just going to be candid uh, and, and ask what I think might be coming to people's minds. Sure. If the experts in Washington are making all these mistakes or they were wrong about inflation, then they're going to look at you and say, hey, Charles, why should I trust what you're telling me and why Legacy Precious Metals is the place to go? I'm, I'm asking this in an honest sure. way because I because I, I know you want to be transparent about this stuff. So how would you Absolutely. answer that? You know, it really is. is I'm not a politician. Um, <laughs> I have no desire to be a politician. I like what I do, right? I help people prepare their finances. I help people with their retirements. I help people set up their funds so that their children and their grandchildren have something that's there. This is what I do. This is what I do for uh, enjoyment. Um, uh, very big in economics. Um, um, but metals is that thing that it's an alternative asset, right? When I was a stockbroker 30 plus years ago, it was unique kind of then. And then everybody was a stockbroker and everyone had stocks and there was nothing different. There was no protection. Everyone said the same thing. To me, it didn't make sense for everyone to be doing the same thing. If we all do the same thing, then we all fall together. And we know that if you follow the government's direction, you're buying into whatever they want to sell you. Now, it used to be politics was a little different. We have gotten into a place where we can't say that anymore. It's not always for the people. It's, we see that. We see that what they're doing with the economy itself. We know that we have to have something else. And this is why we do what we do here at Legacy. And my history is, is why people should, you know, give us a call, chat with us and see if it makes sense for them. Last thing I want to ask you about is I remember 2008 and I know a lot of people mm -hmm. do. And, it, 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 you know, that was a crash and there have been other crashes. But why is it that when the economy crashes, gold has historically risen? I know you said it's sort of the anti-dollar. Right. Is there a way in layman's terms to explain why that happens? It's, it's the safe place. Right. When, when there's so much risk out there and people are losing so much money, they just want safety. Mm -hmm. So l let's look at inflation. We know right now we're running close to eight and a half percent. Yeah, uh, we can dig some real numbers out there and we can debate that. But we'll just take that number as it is. We'll use eight percent. That means everything cost you eight percent more this year than it did last year. And we know it's going to go higher because the Fed's already promised us a lot more interest rate raises right to fight inflation but we know it's not enough when they say things like we'll try to raise half a basis point five times over the next six months and see where the economy's at next year that in itself lets you know you need to find something that doesn't 
put your livelihood in their hands. They're, they're juggling an economy and the stock market. And it was never meant to be that way. So you have to protect yourself. And this is where gold comes in because it is the anti-dollar. The weaker the dollar gets, the stronger gold gets. And, you know, 2008, I remember after it happened, um, the people that would call and try to salvage their retirement accounts. And it was a very devastating time. People would call and they would be crying that they can't retire now. They have to continue to work. They're 67 years old and their plans are gone because they lost half their value. And that's devastating. You know, but this is where those who were involved in gold, they saw gold almost double in price. It offset the losses. It offset the losses. So again, Charles is not suggesting that you put all your money in one place, no. that not even gold, but diversify your assets and precious metals is a good way to go. And Legacy Precious Metals is the only company I trust when I talk about and do my investing in gold and silver. And you can contact them as well. LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. I don't know why you would waste another minute thinking about it. Just talk to them. I mean, just ask them. See what your situation can can manage and handle and might require and just get some answers. Uh, Charles, I appreciate your time. Thanks for this. It's been very educational. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.